Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Heavenly Father, we've sung that we may grow to love your word. Uh, We pray that uh, indeed we would love it more and more as we see um, how much it speaks into our situations. Uh, And so we do pray, whether we love it or not, that you would speak to us powerfully and directly tonight for your praise and glory. Amen. There's a, a huge danger in coming to a church like Christchurch Forward. I mean, there are loads of dangers, but I'm just going to mention a few. First, come along here every week, and when I speak about the desperate plight of the church in this nation, when I speak about falling numbers and failing churches, and the need for the church to be reformed, it sounds as if I'm exaggerating. Because when we look around here and we hear the news of churches that we've planted in recent years, everything seems rosy. We see healthy, growing, thriving churches. But believe me, that isn't the trend across the nation. So there's a danger coming to a place like this because you don't think that there's really any problem out there. Second, come here every week and when I speak about the spiritual and moral decline in churches, it will be difficult to believe. When I tell of how uh, people in churches don't take the Bible seriously and how the gospel isn't taught and how the church is not attracting young people, it sounds as if I'm scaremongering because we have young people here every week and not just one or two. Every year we have postgrads and others offering themselves to be trained to lead the church in the next generation. People here are so committed to the gospel being known in other areas of Sheffield that they have moved house and been part of church plants in these, in these last years. It looks healthy here. But believe me, it's not like that all over the nation. So there's a danger because we don't really feel that there's much to do. The third danger is because compared to other churches, things seem to be well here. We don't see our own blind spots. We can look at other churches and see the moral and spiritual decline in them. We can see small churches and become very proud, thinking we're large and we're doing well. But honestly, we don't see the danger of how the world is affecting us, not the church wider, but us here at Christchurch Forward. You see, we too need to be reformed. The world has begun to get into this church family, not least of all sexually. Desperately, I know Christian students who are committed to Christ and fully involved in the church here and in the C- at the CU in, at university who are not pure sexually, living like all the other students. I know Christian men who play a full part in the life of this church are enslaved to pornography. No different to other men. It's not just in the area of sexuality. What about greed and materialism? How many of us have so much and give so little to those in need? There is a danger of being here at this church because we don't see the need for reformation anywhere else and we can be fooled into thinking that we don't need to be reformed either. Uh, Last week at the end of chapter 6, the building work on the temple was completed so that it looked as if it was mission accomplished. But while the building work on the temple was finished, the book of Ezra isn't. Because although the building work on the temple is finished, although it's rebuilt, the people of God have not been rebuilt or reformed There is still a huge work of reformation to happen to reform the people of God to be the distinct people that they should be. 
As we read chapter 7, verse 1, it's almost 60 years after the events of chapters 5 and 6. Artaxerxes is on the throne in Persia and having rebuilt the temple, the people of God are well established in Jerusalem. They must have looked around and think, we're doing well. And then chapter 7, verse 1, Ezra arrives on the scene. Finally, we meet the man after whom the book is named. We haven't met him before now. Verses 1 to 5 record Ezra's family tree. To us, these verses might seem to be nothing more than a list of names we know nothing of and find it difficult to pronounce. Quite pleased that somebody else is reading it tonight. But be sure this is not a waste of ink and parchment. Verses 1 to 5 are written to ensure us that Ezra's family line can be traced all the way back to, do you see at end of verse 5, Aaron the chief priest, Aaron the right-hand man of Moses, Ezra then has a fantastic pedigree, second to none. If he were a racehorse, we'd call him a thoroughbred. The point is, Ezra was a bona fide priest. He is the real deal. Priesthood was running through his veins. And the particular aspect of his priestly role that we're to note here is that he was a teacher. It's repeated right through this chapter. I wonder if you noted it when it was being read I'll point it out to you, verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses. Verse 10, Ezra devoted himself to the study, observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest and teacher. Uh, Verse 12, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law. And the same is said in verse 21 and verse 25. And here's the first point if you're taking notes and the points will come up on the screen. Ezra, devoted to God's word. You see, it was precisely because of Ezra's ability to teach God's law that the Lord wanted him in Jerusalem among his people. It's reminiscent of the beginning of chapter 5, if you were here a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember, because of great opposition to the rebuilding of the temple, the temple rebuilding had come to a shuddering halt in chapter 4, and the thing that kick-started the rebuilding of the temple was the arrival of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. As they brought God's word to God's people, the work began again. Now, 60 years later, once again, God sent a teacher of God's word to begin a new building work, the work of reforming the people themselves, reforming their lives, making them the people they ought to be. That indeed is what the rest of the book is about, that very thing. And it's what makes these chapters so relevant to us. As I've already suggested, the church is not as it should be. The church is not distinctive. In so many ways, the church has embraced the morality of the world. Just yesterday, this message arrived in my inbox. On Friday, the Scottish Episcopal Church voted in favour of changing their canons on marriage. You'll recall a few years back, the British government redefined marriage, as if anyone can actually do that, as it's God who created marriage, he's the one who defines it, but that's what they did. And now the Episcopal Church in Scotland has done the same. I I was saddened but not surprised when the government changed its legislation. But when the church does it, I am lost for words. The Episcopal Church in Scotland have decided to completely disregard God's word, which clearly teaches that marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. 
That is just one example, perhaps the biggest one at the moment, but that's just one example of the many examples I could give you of the church just becoming like the world, no longer distinctive. And why is the church not as it should be? Because the leaders of God's church are not teaching God's word. Uh, this summer, many of you will uh, go, on, uh, go on holiday and you'll go to church somewhere else other than here while you're on holiday. And desperately, many of you will experience this very thing. You'll go to churches where the preacher barely opens the Bible. And when the Bible is opened, he, it, it won't be taught carefully. And I know that will be your experience because every year in September, a number of you tell me that you've been on holiday and that's been your experience of church on holiday. In churches up and down this land, God's word is not being taught. And those churches are dying. The church is in decline in this land. In great contrast to churches where the Bible is being taught, we, have, we don't have to travel far, very far from here, to find churches where the Bible is being taught and remarkable transformation is happening. I think of two churches that are part of our network of churches, St Andrew's Kendra in Barnsley and St Thomas Kilnhurst near Rotherham. Seven, eight or nine years ago, these churches were very small. One of them had less than 15 people going on a Sunday. They have, in these last years, been blessed with men who are committed to teaching the Bible. They were churches of just a handful. They are now buzzing, full of life. That happens when the Bible is taught. These men are committed to the scriptures and believe them. And that's why the Lord sent a teacher to God's people in Jerusalem to bring about reformation. Because when the Bible is taught, then people are transformed. And these verses show just why Ezra was chosen for that task. Why Ezra could be trusted. Look with me at verse 6. Ezra was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. The ESV reads, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. Gordon McGonville says that word skilled, our word here, well versed, has, its root, has at its root the idea of speed. Uh, the point is Ezra knew God's word so well he could make brilliantly considered judgments really quickly because he knew the word inside out. He was well-versed, skilled in the law of Moses. And verse 10 tells us why. I love this verse. Ezra devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Four things to note from this verse. One, Ezra was devoted to God's law. Devoted is a wonderful word. It means being single-minded, undistracted. It's about a, a heart commitment to God, God's law. Ezra was devoted to God's word. And what is most wonderful is how rounded he was in that devotion. Secondly, verse 10, Ezra devoted himself to the study of God's law. To the study. Again, it's what we need for the church to be reformed. We need leaders who are do devoted to studying God's word. Studying God's word every day, that's devotion. Studying it carefully. Not trotting out evangelical platitudes, but looking carefully for the nuances in God's word. Not giving up when it's complex, working hard at it, pouring over the scriptures, longing to know God's word. We need leaders like that. Ezra was devoted to God's word. Second, uh, he was devoted to studying God's word. And third in verse 10, Ezra devoted himself to the observance of God's law. How crucial that is 
It's very easy if it's your thing to be someone who enjoys studying God's word. Some people, people like to study all sorts of things. It's very easy to be very interested in the flow of the Bible passage and how it all works together and all the cross-references that you can find in other parts of the Bible. To be able to craft a great sermon. All sorts of people are going to be into that. But this goes further. That's important, but this goes further. For Ezra, his study was not a purely academic exercise. Having worked hard to understand God's word, he devoted himself to living it out, doing what it says. So there was no hypocrisy in Ezra. How different Ezra was to the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. Remember, intellectually, the Pharisees and scribes knew the Bible inside out. They didn't live it. Ezra was devoted to studying God's word so that he knew what it said. And then he was devoted to observing it, living it out in his life. And fourth, verse 10, Ezra devoted himself to teaching the decrees of God's law in Israel. So he studied it, he lived it, and then he taught it. It has to come in that order. See, I have to understand it before I can teach it to others. I have to live it first before I can teach it to others, or I will quite rightly be accused of being a hypocrite. No one will listen to me. So I must be devoted to living it if I'm going to get a hearing, but I must also be devoted to teaching it if I'm going to be a faithful teacher. What I mean by that is, in the chapters ahead, we'll discover that what Ezra taught wasn't popular. He had to call on people to repent. He called on people to change the way they were living in the most personal areas of their lives. And it was precisely because Ezra was devoted to teaching God's word that he kept teaching it even when it didn't make him popular. Ezra kept teaching God's word even when people didn't listen. Ezra kept teaching God's word when people didn't get it. Ezra kept teaching God's word when it cost him personally. He kept teaching it when it wasn't culturally acceptable. Ezra kept teaching the word of God because he was devoted to teaching the law. And that is why the Lord wanted Ezra in Jerusalem. That's why Ezra would be the conduit through which the Lord would realise a reformation among the people in Jerusalem. Because it is through the word faithfully taught that God reforms his people. And so if there's going to be a reformation in God's church in this land today, we need men and women like Ezra. Men like Ezra who are devoted to studying, living and teaching God's word to be leading churches in this land. Men and women like Ezra to be teaching God's word to children and youth in, in women's Bible studies and student ministry. And so I want to ask this this evening, how about you? Do you see the need in the church in this land for there to be a reformation? Do you want to see a reformation in the church in this land? Then I want to ask you, are you devoted to God's word? Do you study it? Do you seek to live it? Has the Lord gifted you to teach it? Is there a single-mindedness about you in those things? If that is you, we are ready to invest in you, to teach you and equip you and teach you all the skills you'll need to effectively handle God's word. With your devotion and the Lord's equipping, lives will be transformed. Churches will be awakened. New churches will be planted. 
So if tonight something I've said connects with you, will you come and speak to me before you go home tonight and say, I'd like to talk about this as a possibility for the rest of my life. Won't be right for everybody to do this. Not everybody being teachers in God's church. What a disaster that would be. We do need more though. So Ezra was devoted to God's word and it was Ezra's devotion to God's word that brought him God's blessing. So if the first point is Ezra devoted to God's word, the second, if you're taking notes, is the Lord's gracious hand upon Ezra. Look at the link between verses nine and 10. I think if we get this link, it really opens up the passage. I'll read from halfway through verse nine. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of his God was on him for Ezra had devoted himself to the study, observance, and teaching of the law. You see, the, the reason God's gracious hand was upon Ezra, end of verse 9, was because, for, verse 10, Ezra was devoted to studying, observing, and teaching God's word. There's a causal link here. The way to know God's blessing upon us, and very specifically, the way to know God's gracious hand upon us when it comes to bringing about a reformation in his church, is to be devoted to his word. Some years back when I was on the staff at St. Peter's Harold Wood uh, in Essex, I went to a local church uh, nearby to lead a service for them because their minister was on holiday. We often do that sort of thing. After the service, one of the church wardens thanked me for helping them and asked me, what's the secret of success in St. Peter's Harold Wood? St. Peter's was a church of about 400 or 550 people on a Sunday. It was was one of the biggest churches in the area. Why is St. Peter's so successful? What's the secret? That was the question. And I said, I don't think there is a secret. We're simply committed to teaching the Bible because we believe that that's how people hear God's voice. And when God speaks to them, people change. And the warden says, yes, I know you're a Bible teaching church, but what else do you do? What is it that makes you so successful? Strangely, Tim Cudmore was telling me this week that he had an almost identical conversation recently with someone in Sheffield. The person was looking around the church and hearing about the church because of all the building works we're doing. They were blown away by all that was going on here. They wanted to know why we had so much going on and why so many people came here. Why, in this person's words, we were thriving. And Tim told them, everything we do has the Bible at the centre of it. And the person he was speaking to said, yes, and what else do you do? And Tim said, no, no, I I probably haven't explained myself. I'm sorry, that's it. It's very clear in verses 9 and 10 that God's hand was upon Ezra because Ezra was devoted to the study, observance and teaching of God's words. And just as Ezra's being a teacher is emphasised in this chapter, so is the fact that God's hand was on Ezra. That is also repeated through this chapter. We see it in verse 6. We've already seen it there, you see. Halfway through verse 6, the king had granted him everything he asked for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Uh, We've just seen it at the end of verse verse 9. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. And the same phrase comes... uh, towards the end of verse 28 because the hand of the Lord my God was on me now in the verses um, that uh, in those three verses we see three specific ways that Ezra experienced God's gracious hand upon him so three things as we 
begin to draw to a close. First, the king granted Ezra everything he asked for. That's in verse 6 that I've just read. Now, now this is remarkable that the king, Artaxerxes, granted Ezra everything he asked for. It's remarkable because if you were here a few weeks ago, back in chapter 4, we saw how the very same king, King Artaxerxes, listened to those who opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem and he issued a decree that the work of rebuilding the walls of the city be stopped. But now, here in chapter 7, when Ezra went to see the king to ask for permission to return to Jerusalem and to take hundreds of people with him, end of verse 6, the king granted him everything he asked for because the hand of the Lord his God was upon Ezra. Now, the end of the chapter credits this remarkable turnaround to the Lord. Verse 27, praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. It's very clear. It, once again, it's the Lord who turned the heart of King Artaxerxes. We've seen it again and again and again in this book. The Lord has the hearts of kings in his hands The gracious hand of the Lord was on Ezra to change the king's heart when Ezra approached him because Ezra was devoted to God's word. I can just imagine Ezra walking in to see the king. He finally got an audience with the king and I can see him trembling, his knees knocking. He's going before the king, the king who calls himself the king of kings. He's a bit big for his own boots, I think. There we are. He was a powerful man, the most powerful man in 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 in, in the whole world at the time, king of Persia. See his knees knocking. I'd like to go back to uh, Jerusalem and take some people with me. He already knew that he was against it. And he says, yeah, you can go. I think it works like this. Ezra was soaked in the Bible. And because he was devoted to living out God's word, we can be sure that when he sought an audience with the king, he asked the king for the things that God wanted. And because Ezra was asking for the things that God wanted, God knew that he could trust Ezra. So God changed the heart of the king. Ezra wanted to teach God's people what they ought to know. And that's what God wanted, so he changed the heart of the king. When our hearts, our heart's desire is shaped by God through his word, the gracious hand of the Lord is going to be upon us and we will get things we never thought possible. He will turn around impossible situations to give us what we ask for and more. And that's exactly what we discover as we read on in this chapter. Ezra asked for people to be allowed to go to Jerusalem and from verse 12 we have the king's response. Look at verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings, Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. That's what Ezra asked for, to be able to leave Babylon and to go to Jerusalem and to take people with him. And the king granted that request. And then look what happened. Verse 15. Moreover, says the king, oh, I'm going to give you something else. Moreover, you're to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you've maintained from the province of Babylon. So it goes on. 
Ezra went in and said, do you think I could go back to Jerusalem with some people, maybe 100 or so, maybe 200, maybe 300 people coming with me to try and do something there? And uh, the king says, yes. And then he says, oh, by the way, you can have all this money as well. Huge financial resources. I think this is how it works. Ezra was devoted to observing God's word, so the Lord knew he could trust him with such wealth. This is such an encouragement to us, isn't it? Indeed, I think we can testify to seeing God work in this way at Christchurch Forward in these last years. We have tried to remain faithful to God's word. Others will have to test whether we are. Trying our best to understand it and live it and teach it as it is. We're trying to do what we can to see the church reformed in Sheffield and South Yorkshire and across Britain by planting churches and training leaders and growing this church. And wonderfully, wonderfully, as we focused on that, we've seen the Lord's gracious hand upon us. Church planting and training leaders has been financially challenging and costly for us. And when we've been really financially stretched, because we've been aiming to do these things, the Lord has provided. In the last 10 years, as we pushed on with the work, at the end of most financial years, when we've been expecting a deficit, the Lord has met our needs. This last year, we budgeted for a deficit. Almost down to the last pound, we were given exactly the money we needed. The Lord's hand was upon Ezra, granting him everything he asked for. Second, the Lord's hand was upon Ezra in giving him success in the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 9. We're not going to look at that this week because that is fleshed out in chapter 8. So we'll look at that next week. So the Lord's hand was upon Ezra, granting him everything he asked for, giving him success in the journey. And thirdly, in giving him courage. And with this we close. Look at verse 28. Chapter 7, verse 28. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage. See, knowing that God's gracious hand is upon us, it does encourage us to do daring and difficult things for him. Look at the progression here. Ezra was devoted to God's word. As a result, the gracious hand of God was upon him. That resulted in Ezra seeing the Lord intervening in the most remarkable ways, in turning the heart of the king and providing him with people and money. And that's why Ezra knew that God's gracious hand was upon him. And that gave him courage to carry out God's work, to do daring and dangerous things. Again, I think it's the kind of thing that we're seeing happening in our building for the future project. We've seen £2 million given from the church family and some from sources we thought wouldn't give to us. In that sense, we've seen God's gracious hand upon us. It is remarkable. And that gives us courage to keep going, to press on, to go on with the project. The same is true in church planting. I've been very excited to see how the Lord has opened up one church planting opportunity in recent months. And just this week, another exciting opportunity seems very possible. It hasn't come about yet, but it seems very possible. I'm amazed by both of them. We don't have the money to do any more church planting. But it seems we're being given the resources we need. I can only put it down to God's hand, fashioning the situation and working in the hearts of others and that gives me courage to go on with the work of church planting, even though it's hard work and it puts pressure on us here when people leave us and go and start another church elsewhere. 
See the point when we see God's hand upon us, when things happen in ways that only God can work out, then it gives us courage to keep going with the work. And we do need courage if we to see this church, the church in this land, reformed. We need leaders in God's church who are devoted to studying, living and teaching God's law. Then we'll see God's gracious hand upon us. We will see him do the most remarkable things that only he can do. And that will give us the daring, the courage to do daring and difficult things in an attempt to reform the church, which the church in this land so desperately needs. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for Ezra. Thank you that he was one who was so devoted to studying, living and teaching your law. Thank you that as he did that, you wonderfully blessed him with your hand upon him and his efforts. We thank you that as we think of Ezra, we think of another, one greater than Ezra, the Lord Jesus, who devoted himself to your word, to living it and obeying it. And we thank you that you blessed him and through him bless us. And so we pray, please help us to be a church of your word. And as we are, would you bless us that this church first and then others would be reformed and changed for your praise and glory. Amen.